0: Alright, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. The message is entitled, Living Out a Mature Life. Paul revealed that the believer's practical sanctification is an ongoing process of spiritual maturity throughout life, not a product of perfection in this life. And that it was characterized by three things as we saw in verses 12 through 16. The perspective regarding spiritual maturity we we saw in verse 12. The principles regarding spiritual maturity we looked at in verse 13 and 14. And the persons regarding spiritual maturity were indicated in verses 15 and 16. What I want to do is look a little further on the concluding exhortation of Paul here to every believer to practice living out a mature life in verses 15 and 16, focusing on three important elements. Let me read 15 and 16. He says, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Now, we did the full exposition last time in these verses, but I want to focus on three different things here that we find in the text. First, the mind of Christ that is foundational, verse 15. This is for maturity. Secondly, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is essential, in verse 15 also. And then, the practice of life that is relational that you find there in verse 16. Let's begin here. The mind of Christ is foundational. Listen to his word. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. The apostle Paul declared that as many as are mature are to have this mind. Now, we have it. When I say have it, we need to put it on, okay, to apply it. We have everything in Christ Jesus. Whether we make access and availability and uh, benefit our life and others with it, that's another matter. The determined purpose is to be conformed to Christ. Remember verse 10. Reckoning the old man dead daily, denying oneself as being the most important person. That's how we used to live. Now we're not. We're not the most important. Joy. Jesus, others, you, last. That's the order of Christianity. Denying one's sinful desires that focus on one's will and one's pleasure. Now we can make the right choices. Denying excuses, blaming others and seeing ourselves as victims. No such thing. But also relying on the new man to live daily, to think with the mind of Christ, to serve with the mind of Christ, to be humbly yielding to the mind of Christ. That's wisdom. Also recognizing as a mature believer that this is to be ongoing, constant. There isn't a time after I'm born again that I can afford to not walk in The spirit under the new divine nature. The tense is the present active. There is no time a believer can afford to not have the mind of Christ. The determined pursuit is to obtain all Christ has for the believer. Because we cannot give what we do not have. It's like the measles. you got to have them before you can give them. In verse 12, we saw this. As a member of the family of God, my call as a believer when I'm born again, what have you called me to do, Lord? Remember Paul Damascus Road? What would you have me do, Lord? First encounter of his mouth. Secondly, my gifts to serve. Lord, what gifts have you given me? I or to the Lord. You don't go to your pastor. You don't go to another Christian. You go to the Lord. Lord, show me my gifts, my position in the church. Where do I fit in? Am I a toe, my little finger, my foot? What am I? But also as a member of my family on earth, my responsibility as a single person to others. In the world, we live for ourselves. We use people. We conned them. We manipulated them. Because we were the most important. My responsibility to my wife. Or if I'm a woman, to my husband. My priorities. My responsibility to my children as a father. That I pray for them, I instruct them. I correct them. I chasten them. I give them the example. My responsibility to the other members of the family, members of my wife's family, my family. As they know I'm a Christian, as they know that I minister the gospel. But also the determined obedience for the ongoing process and principles of forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead, pressing towards the goal, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus in verse 13 and 14. The word mind, as we said last time, for nail, it means to think, to be minded in the manner and way of Christ. Paul said about Timothy, I have, I have no one else like minded as a servant of Christ to care for people. You've had friends that you spent many years with. And because you spent so many years with each other, you became like-minded in certain ways, sometimes scary in every way. And this is the idea, that we think in our mind and look at things through Christ as he tells us, as he enables us, not the old man. The word appears 13 times in the letter. Mind. The mind of Christ. The new man. The new mind. The inner man. Three times in verses 15 and 16. The focus, notice, is the mind of a humble servant after the example of Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. This is the epitome example. The zenith of the example. And then he gives himself, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus, as we've seen. Notice the Apostle Paul clearly declared that Christianity is not a mindless commitment, but a very rational one in view of the revelation. Often you and I as Christians are thought as a bunch of buffoons. You know, we're just a bunch of dummies. We believe all this junk how can you believe the Bible? My expression is how can you not believe the Bible? Every book that I've ever read has flaws. Every textbook in every school system is always updated because knowledge increases. The Bible has never been recalled, never. It's the same. doesn't need to be recalled doesn't need to be updated. God wrote it. (laughs) So it's not a mindless commitment, but a very rational one in view of the revelation. In view that our righteousness is not accepted before God, then it is rational to accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing I am, nothing I did, nothing I can do, nothing I can present will get me audience before God or justify before God. So it's a very rational, logical thing to accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our earthly accomplishments may commend us and give us an advantage on the earth before men, but not to be justified before God. As Paul said in chapter 3, verse 4 through 5. He looks at all his accolades. All that he did. Hebrew of Hebrew. Circumcised the eighth day. Tribe of Benjamin. Persecuting the church. My contemporaries, I smoked them. Couldn't keep up with me. None of that could present him justified before God. Our earthly merits, works... Morals, ethical standings are no value to enter heaven. They deceive us being a pile of manure, as they said in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. So nothing that I've accomplished that is moral, ethical, or excellent can present me justified before God. In fact, it, it, it destroys me before God. It doesn't give me an advantage. It really hurts me. It's, it, it it works against me. The scriptures are always calling for the obedience of our mind. God gave a choice to Adam and Eve, as you know, in Genesis three, because they had the ability to exercise it, and they had the capacity to make the right choice, but they chose not to. Free will. God did not force them to choose the wrong choice. Now, Calvinists teach that. We don't believe the scriptures teach that at all. Calvinists blame God for the fall. They say that God predestined the fall. If God predestined the fall, how can he hold them responsible for what he forced them to do then? Here's their answer. Well, God's sovereign. Shut up. That's a cop-out. It's like your kid, you know, you ask him, Why'd you do that? Because well that's not an answer. I don't know. Hmm. He gave them a choice to obey or disobey, they chose to disobey. God gives us the choice as Adam and Eve again. John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. That's a horrible verse. That is such a heartbreaking verse. Because it's in the grasp, the capacity of man to turn from their sin by the grace of God through the preaching of the gospel to be forgiven and to enter into eternal life. But there's a choice, and the majority reject that. God's heart is broken. To believe and choose His Son is to have life. To disbelieve and reject His Son is to not have life, but rather to the wrath of God abides in Him. Now, that means that the wrath of God is upon every non-believer. Before I was born again, the wrath of God was upon me. I didn't know that. When I believed, it was removed from me. If I would have rejected Jesus and kept going, it would have remained on me. It would have abided in me. It wouldn't have manifested itself till after death and then the judgment. But nevertheless, it was true. God excludes no one. Revelation 3.20, he stands at the door and knocks. right? If any man opens that door, come in with him, it's up with him and he with me. By the way, do we, though we use that for evangelism. Jesus is talking to the church that kicked them out. It's one of his churches. They kicked them out of the church. He wants individuals to let them back in. <laughs> That's the context of that, not evangelism. He's talking to Christians, not non-believers. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord, in Romans 6.23. Now notice the Apostle Paul declared that this mature mind is a product of the Word of God. He told them they had partaken with Paul of grace in the opening chapter, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. Grace, unmerited favor. Lydia and other women partook when he came with Silas to preach the gospel to Philippi. Others, in the following ten years since the inception of the church, had partaken. Paul is rejoicing what God had done. He told them he was praying for them that their love might abound more and more in the knowledge and in all discernment. In chapter 1, verse 9, their new birth was but the beginning of the new life in Christ. Think of when you accepted Christ and how far you've come and how many things have taken place in your life and the difficulties you've gone through and how you've been victorious and the joys and the uh, just blessing that it is in walking with the Lord. Because you know, as people stay in the world, the older you get, you don't get better. We hide things good, but we don't get better. As you're with the Lord and in the Lord and you're involved in the work of the Lord, you are the safest and the most protected by God. And you receive the greatest benefit of God because you're being nourished by the Spirit of God, the Word of God. You're around the people of God and you're able to go back into the world, work, neighbors and everything, and be equipped to live victoriously as light and salt in the world. It's like a battery, you gotta be charged up. And that's what we do. He said they were able to approve the things that were excellent and be sincere without offense till the day of Christ in Philippians one ten. All of these things, the capacities, are because they are in Christ through the Word of God. They could discern spiritual truth from error. They could resist the deception of Satan, the God of this world. You have experienced that and so have I since we've come to Christ. Something that we could never do before. He also told them he was confident that he would remain and continue with all of them. For their progress and joy and faith in chapter one, verse twenty-five, as you know, he's before Nero, and um, he um, he's being tried for the gospel. Their spiritual progress would produce joy, he said. Their joy was the result of their faith in Christ, not feelings, not situations, not circumstances. The world. Is always trying to indoctrinate people today to live by their emotions, their self-will, what feels good, depending on the circumstance. The Bible teaches you to live in wisdom, to discern, to make good, objective decisions based on truth, not your feelings or your emotions. He told them, To hold fast to the word of life that he might rejoice in the day of Christ. Evident that he had not run or labored in vain in chapter 2 verse 16. The word of God that he preached to them. The word would make them strong. The word would make them stable. The word would make them reliable. The word would make them trustworthy. The word would make them victorious. That's what the word of God does. You have a Christian who accepts Christ and is not taught the Word of God, they're not victorious. In fact, they'll live a carnal life. They they don't they don't know the mind and the will of God. So they live their life the way they used to. Yet they've opened their heart to the Lord. How long can they remain like that? I have no idea. I don't think long because they'll start reaping the same way as the people in the world because they'll be sowing the same way as the people in the world one day a father seeing his son conducting himself in an inappropriate manner with the younger kids he called out his name and said Jim, act your age There are certain things that are inappropriate for certain ages. If you're two years old in the Lord, that's all God requires you to act like. If you're 20 years in the Lord, He wants you to act 20-year-old. Act your age, responsible. Others are looking. People are to have their eyes on Christ, but sadly, some people have their eyes on us. And they judge Christ by what we do, what we say. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. In Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6. Only God's word reveals the righteousness of God, not the words of man. The believer is born into warfare. The minute you're born again, you're born into warfare. You're not asked to go if you want to be in warfare. You are born into warfare. Satan's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's the prince in the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. He is the prince in the power of the air that deceives, and we all used to run after the course of the world. Um, we were the children of wrath by nature, it says there. Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In 1 Peter 5a, so we're to be sober, vigilant, not asleep, lackadaisical. They're like people today in the world, right? They they, you're walking on the street, you know. They sit down, they're they're unaware of their surroundings. They walk in the malls, they're unaware of people that are scoping them out to pickpocket them. Get out of their car, they don't see someone's going to steal. Everybody is so entertained with this little television, out of sight, out of mind. They're not aware of their surroundings. Hmm. The believer must put on the whole armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, 9 down to 18 says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord. The power of his might put on the whole armor of God. And then he's one, one at a time. He gives it. He ends up with prayer. That we might be able to stand, having done all, to end up standing. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, principalities and powers, dominions and darkness and high places. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, pulling down the strongholds, casting down every argument, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The attack of Satan, listen to me carefully, is not against me. It's against the knowledge of God. The attack is always against the knowledge of God. Has God said, you surely will not die? He will attack me till the day I die. The attack is against God's word. Not me. The life of the believer has been equipped spiritually. A new heart. A new spirit. A new nature. A new set of weapons and armor. A new mind. Wow. The mind of Christ is foundational for maturity. Second is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is essential. Still there in verse 15, he says, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Now we did the full exposition last time. I want to focus on something different. The Apostle Paul here primarily in, in the context declared to those who are of a different persuasion about maturity that there is another way or that perhaps they had arrived if they Seek the Lord, the Spirit of God will reveal their need of ongoing maturity. In other words, Paul didn't think he can convince or try to, you know, some people don't listen. But we we commend people to God, to his grace. If they're sincere, God is going to deal with them. God is going to nail them, right? I do what I can, I pray, I share with you, and then I back off. Because we can't force anybody. The person of the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, as you know. Um, he is called the Spirit of God in Genesis one two. He's called the Spirit of the Lord in Judges three ten. He was called Thy Spirit or Your Spirit, New King James, Old King James, in Psalm one thirty nine seven. He's called My Spirit in Isaiah forty four three. He is called His Spirit. In Isaiah 48, 16, he is called only three times the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, 11, Isaiah 63, 10, and 11. We've done a whole series on the Holy Spirit, the person, the work, the gifts. Go online, go through the whole series. It'll give you some great theology to draw from. The person of the Holy Spirit is the third person in order of submission but not inferior in quality, for He is God. He is part of the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, 16, 20. He is included in the benediction to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He possesses the same attributes of the Father, the Son, the Son, He's called the Eternal Spirit in Hebrews 9.14. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, present everywhere at the same time, omniscient. He knows everything. Just like the Father, just like the Son. The Holy Spirit is the illuminator to bring sinners to faith. The Spirit convicts a sinner of their sins enabling them to repent if they choose to accept Jesus. Jesus said this, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 5. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. At the requirement for every sinner to recognize their sinfulness by the grace of God through the Spirit of God that illuminates, brings conviction so they acknowledge their sin, they confess their sin, they ask Christ to forgive them of their sin, and they abandon their sin. That is born again. That is biblical repentance. Okay, If you just feel bad about your sin or the consequences, that's remorse. When you see your sin against God first, then with others and for, against others, that's the proper order. Once we're born again, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the things of God because we have the mind of Christ, as we've been talking about. The um, natural man does not comprehend the things of, this, of God. In uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16, says, "I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And he goes on to say, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit or accept them, but we have the mind of Christ. He finishes in verse 16 having the mind of Christ what we need to do is put it on okay you can have some great looking pants or a shirt or a suit if you don't put it on it's just hanging in the closet it doesn't do you any good you can have the newest car in your garage but if you don't get in and drive it you're not going to enjoy it the believer is being changed or transformed daily into the image of Christ from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord, Paul says in Second Corinthians three eighteen. Look how far again I've mentioned before you've come. What you used to be before Christ, what you are now. How He's transformed you, your life, your priorities, everything. The person of the Holy Spirit is included in the doxology of the second epistle to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and the love of God, the first person of the Trinity, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Be with you all. Amen. All three persons in their respective roles. The Holy Trinity. Notice the apostle Paul confirmed that the Holy Spirit is the agent to come alongside the believer and the church. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the church at Philippi. Jesus said, And all and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. John fourteen sixteen. Now, the word another, alos expresses a numerical difference and denotes another of the same sort according to Vine's Dictionary. So, a distinct number, but of the same source. The second person, the third person, both God. That's what it indicates. Notice, the comforter is made up of two words. It's found four times in John 14, 16, 26 and 15 26 and 16 17 that night before jesus was betrayed he spent speaking about the holy spirit's coming in chapter 14 15 and 16 of john very very key the word para means alongside and kalel to call and we've made mention of this many many times to come alongside um, and, and to help you do the work not to do it for you you must yield and then he works in conjunction Um, We get the word paramedic alongside a medic, paralegal alongside a lawyer, parallel parking alongside the curb, same root word. The person of the Holy Spirit is the comforter, the one who comes alongside to help us and aid the believer as the advocate or the lawyer for our defense in order to stand with the Lord and to be strengthened and to let him do the work in us. And through us. Jesus said he will abide with you forever in John 14, 16. The promise of abiding forever is in contrast. Take the context. A lot of people will use that for eternal security. Listen to the context. It's the contrast of Jesus leaving. Since his ministry was fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit coming as a permanent residence for the age of grace that's the context i came for a short time i'm leaving he told the disciples they are leaving they're freaking out what do you mean you're leaving yeah but the holy Spirit's going to come he's never going to leave okay so the statement is in contrast to him i came for a short time i'm leaving he's coming he's never going to leave that's the context not eternal security okay very very important I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, he says in John 14:18. The word orphan simply means one who's bereaved or parentless. Having um, the idea of one being um, comfortless and alone, and uh, he has not left us alone. Uh, we have his word and the Holy Spirit is the illuminator. He convicts, he directs, he guides, he teaches, uh, he speaks. Uh, He does all these things in the name of Christ. The believer has been adopted as a son and daughter of of God. Uh, Romans 8, 15, Ephesians 1, 5. Galatians were able to call the father, daddy. I have a father. Sons and daughters of God. Now notice the Apostle Paul affirmed then that the Holy Spirit came to be a representative of Jesus, not of himself. This is important. He is called the Spirit of Truth. Jesus said, I am the truth in John sixteen thirteen. Okay. He will guide you into all truth. Jesus came to guide men unto all the truth about God. He came to bring us to the Father. The Holy Spirit comes to bring us to the Son. Each play a role in salvation. He will not speak of his own or himself, but of Christ, just as Jesus spoke not of himself but of the Father, John 16:13. He will tell us of things to come as Jesus told the Father's plan and His will when He came in John 16:13 also. He will not glorify himself but Christ even as Christ glorified not himself but the Father in John 16:14. So you can see that the Trinity works in conjunction, pointing man to the other, not themselves. Jesus put it this way, But when the Helper comes, when whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, John fifteen twenty six. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, never speaks of himself, never glorifies himself, never brings attention to himself. And yet you have so many people today, particularly in the emergent church and extreme Pentecost, that are always speaking about the Spirit, and they're doing and saying and teaching things that are unbiblical about the Spirit. The Spirit came to testify of the Son and to point us to the Son, not himself. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are both called truth. Aletheia, as I pointed out. The Father and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Both of them did that. You know, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to the believer is like having night vision. Your spiritual vision is clear and you can understand the Word of God. If you're not born again... You do not have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God means nothing. You'll you'll you'll, you'll take it another way. You'll just add it to your portfolio of philosophies, and uh, you'll just uh, add it to it and, and and pull it out when it's convenient. And you know you're eclectic. You know a little bit about everything, but not enough about anything. Um, that's today. Here are some of the things the Holy Spirit does in the believer. He teaches all things. John 14, 16. All things. It's not because we're so smart. It's because we've come to Christ. Open thou my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Psalm 119, 18 says. He will bring all things to our remembrance in John 14, 26. There is... The need of every believer to read, study, and meditate, to have recall. The Spirit of God is not going to bring out what you don't put in. Just like a computer. You can't recall something that you haven't put in there. It's simple. We are to be diligent. To present ourselves approved to God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, studying. Doing good inductive Bible study. Context, the language, the culture in which it's written so we can understand what it meant to the people of that day and then see how it applies to us. He will guide us into all truth, he says in John 16.13. His word is truth, Jesus said in in the Father's prayer, there in uh, John seventeen seventeen, which is really the Lord's prayer, as He's praying to the Father. The spirit of truth and error is able to be discerned by us. In First John four sixteen, you listen to something, say that's not right. I was doing the Wednesday morning study, and we came in here at first, and they kicked us out of here because they were practicing. So we went to the gym and set up in the morning. And um, and one of the guys came and they gave me a paper of. And, and the ministry is is um is the Berean call, but it 's not the berean call it 's like it 's a church that has taken that name and as I was reading it, it what he was saying was so off the wall, but he caught it you see he 's circling it and I go yeah this guy he not how how do you do that by studying the Word of God by dropping the plumb light and, and and checking what is said. To what God says. And you can detect truth and error. Real simple. He will show us things to come. He says in John 16, 13. This is the only one of the four that I've mentioned here. That does not have the word all in it. Because God does not show us all things. <laughs> the secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The principle. Context of speaking about when he would bring them back from captivity, but the principle is there. He reveals some things to us. Sometimes God warns us. Sometimes God gives us a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. Right? He speaks to us very personal. He brings liberty and transformation to us by the word. Uh, Lesson two Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen again. It says, "Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's the third person of the Trinity, the illuminating work, the conviction, the transformation that is working in us and through us constantly. Under construction, not yet finished. That's what's going on. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light afflictions, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are not seen, but at the things that are seen, for the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. In this room tonight, ladies and gentlemen, there are good angels and bad angels. There's warfare going on here. We can't see it. That is eternal. Those angels will live in eternity. Some apart from God, others with God. We here, we're here for a short time. Then we'll be with the Lord. (laughs) But there's two worlds at the same time here. Here are some of the things the Holy Spirit does in the church. He bursts new life through the preaching of the gospel, Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. What a miracle that is. Every time a person accepts Christ, it's the greatest miracle you will ever experience to see or witness. We've had people get healed of cancer. We have people get healed of different things. But that's a temporary miracle. The Eternal miracles when a person is born again. That is such a miracle because we are enemies of God. We don't want nothing to do with God. We are self-will. We want our way. And that God in His grace would turn the light on to convict us and give us an opportunity to be saved is a miracle that we would even accept. Absolute miracle. He will equip people for ministry. All through the book of Acts, you see him using people, equipping them. The elders there in Acts 6, to care for the ministration of the Hebrew widows. He will direct and guide the affairs of the church. Paul was forbidden to preach in Asia and Bithynia. Remember in Acts 16, 6-7, through but God was directing and guiding the Philippi by saying no. You as a parent tell your, your child, says that, you said no, you're guiding them, you're teaching them. As much as when you say yes. The Holy Spirit led in the decision for the Gentiles to come into the church in Acts fifteen, twenty nine. And letters were sent out. You know, there's some Jews that have gone off from us and they want to lay a big heavy burden on you, you have to be circumcised to be saved. We we, we teach no such thing. You keep yourself from fornication, from idols, from blood, you'll do well. Wow. He will call out missionaries, <clears throat> as he did in Acts 13:2 through 3. God called, uh, calls and sends men out. He says, as they minister to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry, which I have called in verse 2 of chapter 13 of Acts. God calls, God sends. The problem is today pastors and churches call and send people. That's why they're ineffective. God is the one who calls. God is the one who sends. Verse 3 confirms it. The church only affirmed the call. Sending out by God. He says, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. They only confirmed what God directed. Otherwise, they would have sent them before, right? God is the one who called them. God is the one who sent them out. Were they affected? Absolutely why because God called and God sent the believer needs to ask the holy spirit to come upon him or her regularly jesus spoke of the future time after his, his glorification that the holy spirit would be given without measure out of a person's innermost being would gush forth torrents of living water he said this in john 7:37 through 39, that last day of the great feast, as he would cry out, and they would bring water from the pool, Siloam, the pool, Gaihon and drop it on the steps to declare that God had been faithful to bring them into the land. And they declared the last day they didn't bring water, saying we don't need that anymore. And that day, Jesus says, you're still thirsty, you're still empty, you still need me. Wow. Jesus, speaking to his disciples on prevailing prayer, said that God would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, those who seek, those who not. You find that in Luke 11, 1 through 12, by the way. Now, this is not referring to being born again, for you do not ask and receive the Holy Spirit when you're born again. It's given to you. The context is very important. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, not nonbelievers. The giving of the Holy Spirit in this text in Luke is synonymous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples to wait to receive power from on high in Acts 1.8. They would be endued with power for service. There are many other synonymous names, about seven others, that mean the same thing. We went through it when you go through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the teaching. In fact, Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk with wine which is in dissipation or excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit of God. It's keep on keeping on. It's a continuous present, present tense, continuously. In other words, there is no time when you and I can afford not to be filled with the Spirit of God, not to depend on the power of God, not to be directed and guided by the Spirit of God and be influenced. The Lord Jesus breathed on His disciples, as you know, in John 20, 22, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is before Pentecost, by the way. The word receive, lambano, means to, it's an act of of volition, not passive. In other words, you don't just sit there. You're asking, you're opening for God to fill you. The statement was not an immediate impartation of the Spirit in the form of the baptism of the Spirit, but rather a command to take the Spirit. Then he gave the Spirit to the church on the day of Pentecost. But the disciples received the Spirit. They were born again. The verb is hence a command to an incisive action, not passive. But to seek the Lord, to fill you with the Spirit constantly, to be able to do what is pleasing to him. The book of Acts tells us that being all of one mind, they were continually devoted themselves to prayer in acts one thirteen through 14 now the greek indicates an untranslated article there the text really says in acts 1, 13 and 14 devoted themselves to the prayer the article is there it's not in our english translation what prayer could it be the one Jesus told him in Luke's gospel and the one the baptism of the Spirit is talking about? I think so. I don't think there's any room for any other interpretation in view of what took place in the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, There is one among you who's baptized in the Holy Spirit in John one thirty three, The use of the present participle is timeless and describes not the single event of pentecost but the distinctive ministry of jesus christ he is the one that baptizes in the holy spirit other men can baptize in water but only one baptizes in the holy spirit by the way jesus never baptized anybody in water his disciples baptized john tells that very well in john 4 2 okay he never baptized not one person in water to not confuse it very very clear So the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is essential for maturity. Third and last, notice the practice of life is relational in verse 16. The Apostle Paul declared the practice of life is relation to the light we have received and arrived at. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, the word degree again is in italics, uh, it's not in the text, but it's stated so that we can get the understanding and supplied that the level of maturity that he's talking about. Uh, there's infants, there's children, there's young men and young ladies, and there's fathers and mothers, okay? The three spiritual levels that he gives us in First John and First Peter. Now, the ability is due to dying to self and being spiritually alive in Christ. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you uh, a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain, John 12:24. If we don't die to self, we don't produce. We make life miserable for others. We don't help others, we hinder others. If we die to self, then we can help others. Presenting your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Not being fashioned in this world system, being transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, accepting the perfect will of God in Romans 12:1 and 2. A living sacrifice, not dead, living. This is consistent with Scripture. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites for not living out what they knew. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. All chapter 23 of Matthew. Jesus said, the one who builds his house on the rock is the doer of the word. He's talking about believers, Matthew seven twenty four. The one who doesn't, he builds it on sand. The storms will come and it will fall. Now notice the Apostle Paul declared the practice of our life is in relationship to the standards of the word of God. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. As we said last week, the word walk, um, it means to line up, to march together in file in the same direction. It's used of marching as soldiers. And the word is used of walking in line with the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.25. This is synonymous with walking according to the word. The word and the spirit go together. They're, they're twins. This is the present active tense, continuously. The act of walking communicates certain things: strength and stability, endurance and progress, directions and destiny. In the mind, when you see somebody walking around like this, you know they don't know where they're going. When you see somebody, they confident looking around, and they're going somewhere. Okay, women go shopping; they meander. Men go in, they shop, grab it, and leave. Big difference. Okay? Now, the word rule, canon, complements and reinforces the word walk. Meaning a rod or straight piece of wood tied to something to keep it straight. We get our word canon from it, the canon of scripture that which is straight, that which is the measure for life, the Word of God. Our life is tied to the measure of light and the Word of God to keep us straight in line to the standard of God's Word. The phrase of the same mind reinforces the oneness of what we know and believe and what we live out. Again, mind. Means to have understanding, to think or to judge. It is the same as in verse fifteen. The mind of humble, uh, a humble servant, emptying oneself, motivated by agape love. Jesus again the example in two five. The same mind he says does not leave any room for private interpretation that contradicts the word of God. Sometimes you'll say to somebody, you know, brother, you're Christian? Why are you doing that? Well, that's your interpretation. And so people interpret the Bible subjectively instead of objectively. The principle is to compare Scripture with Scripture in its context. There are gray areas that do not deal with clear-cut sin, but only freedom of conscience regarding foods meats and vegetables some people want to be vegetarian how about it no big deal doesn't make you spiritual if you eat meat doesn't mean you're carnal okay you may have a little higher cholesterol as you get older but you may die sooner than somebody else but whatever but that has nothing to do with spiritual thing how you dress okay what you eat doesn't affect us spiritually. There are doctors different that do touch on salvation, and we have to be careful, those who make distinction of them. And there are other things that don't, so we have to look at them. But again, the plumb line is the Word of God. You know, Paul illustrates this last point, and it illustrates what he's teaching. In chapter 4, verse 9, as he comes to the close, he says this. "The, The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Wow. Anybody care to stand up and say that? Not me. That's an incredible statement, and we know it's by the Spirit of God. Not Paul, arrogantly, through pride. Wow. The scriptures are all about living out our faith. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you may put on the new man which is... a Created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians four twenty one twenty four. 24. To the Colossians, Paul says, But now uh, you yourselves are put uh, are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There's warnings that are given to the believer. Not to the non-believer, to the believer. Listen carefully, for if one, anyone, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing the natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he, uh, he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not forgetful here, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. James one twenty three and twenty four. It's a warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Galatians 6, 7-9. Now the Spirit expressly says, Latter times some will depart from this faith giving heat to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. That can only be a believer. For you to depart, you have to be there. It's not a non-believer. It's a believer. Are you so foolish, she tells the Galatians, having begun the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Galatians 3, 3. The answer is no. No. The purest and all sufficient motivation, ladies and gentlemen, is God's agape love. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on agape, which is the bond of perfection, what holds everything together. Colossians 3, 12-14. And then in Ephesians three fourteen through 21, I'll close with this. Listen. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father. He's praying for them. The Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus, all generations, forever. Amen. Ephesians four. 3, 14 through 21. Wow. Agape never fails, First Corinthians 13, 18. I fail. Agape, when I yield to it, never fails. So the practice of life is relational to maturity. Every believer is to practice living on a mature life. There's not an exception. The mind of Christ It's foundational. The illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is essential. And the practice of life is relational. We affect one another. And we need one another. You can't get away from it. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, your love. We pray, Lord, you deal with our hearts. We thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, that you would just deal with us and, Lord, direct and guide us. And, Father, if there's anyone who doesn't know you over the radio or the Internet or here, Lord, that you would just speak to their hearts. You alone can convict of sin. And, Lord, uh, save people. So we commend them to you. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you're out there, you don't know Christ, he can forgive you of your sin he can save you right now as you call upon his name by grace through faith. If this is your desire, this is your prayer to him. And he's going to save you right now by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord.